Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Eater Upsell. Helen here. Greg is over there. Hey. And with us here in the studio is Melissa Clark, famous cookbook author and New York Times cooking columnist and generally lovely person. Hi, Melissa. Hello. Welcome to The Eater Upsell. We're going to talk with you in just a minute after these messages from our sponsor. That's a lie. It's actually just going to be me and Greg talking about something. Okay, so... Uh, as you know, I moved to, you know, I live in Southern California now and my apartment is around a lot of fast food restaurants and I don't usually, I'm not like a huge fast food fan. I, I don't hate fast food. I just, when I lived in New York, I never ate it. I would always go to a bodega for a sandwich or whatever. Um, but I am like literally one block away from like a Burger King, a McDonald's, a Popeye's, a KFC, and yeah, a few other ones I can't even remember. So, like a fragrant garden of delights. Yeah, um, I, I fail to see where the problem Okay, lies. well, there's no problem. But, um, you know, I, when I first moved to this area and I saw those, I said, okay, I'm probably not really going to use them very often. But then I find that I'm now going to one of these restaurants like maybe every other day for some reason. Yes. Um, yes. This is a victory. I take this very personally. And okay. So the reason is I'm driving around and sometimes I'm driving around, um, you know, with my son in the back seat, and it's a real pain in the ass to take a baby into any sort of store or anything. And so I'm like, if I'm like, ah, I'm thirsty. I've gotten into this habit of being like, you know, um, why don't I just go through the drive through and get a 16 ounce soda, you know, instead of going into that 7-Eleven. And so this is what fast food restaurants are. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is the entirety of Southern California, yeah. right? Like Southern California is the birthplace of modern American fast food and it's the birthplace of the drive through. And it's because of cars like you are you are just doing what you are geographically destined yes, to be doing. Exactly. Um, and so then for various reasons related to my work at Eater, I've had to sort of sample some of the new fast food things like, um, you know, a naked chicken chalupa or uh you know, the new Big Mac. But like when I got the new Big Mac, I was also like, yeah, I'll take one of those McNuggets for, for, you know, a dollar or whatever. And so now as I'm going through. McDonald's is not a sponsor. No, no, just, no. But their nuggets are four yeah. for a dollar, which is a spectacular like, deal. How could you, how could you say no? How can you afford not to eat those nuggets? Right. So now as I'm going about doing whatever errands and now like, now it's become like, maybe I'll go and to the McDonald's drive through and get like a Diet Coke. Now it's like, Maybe I'll go through the McDonald's drive-thru and, oh, yeah, maybe I'll just get some McNuggets or, like, maybe I'll get a small fries. And so now it's, like, I feel like I'm getting sucked into this world of, like, on the sly eating all this this junk food, you know, just because it's so cheap and so convenient and it's kind of hard to say no. So what's the question? <laughs> oh, my question is, where do you think I should go with this? Do you think that I should keep going? Popeye's. Probably you should go to Popeye's. Well, yeah, that's a good point. You've, you've hit on... A fundamental tension in our current era of food connoisseurship, mm -hmm. right? Which is that nobody really can say that fast food is not delicious. It is genetically engineered to be incredibly wonderful and eating it is a pleasure. And in a sort of perverse anti-snobbery way, like I love fast food. I love admitting that I love fast food. And I'm like really, really appreciative of the fact that you are now like on board this train. Oh, yeah. But also... We all understand why fast food is not the best for a, a whole slew of reasons. I mean, it's convenient and it's cheap and you have capitulated. I mean, look, you're you're the dad of a baby and you live in a car city like 
you have an infant child and you have a car. Those are the two prerequisites for I really want fast, cheap food that doesn't require the buckling and unbuckling of my child's car seat. Yeah. So you're the target audience and and you're you're falling into exactly the the pit of quicksand that they want you to be falling into. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I woke up yesterday morning and felt very, very strongly like I needed a spicy fried chicken drumstick from Popeye's. And so on my way to work in the eater office in New York, which I had to get to by subway, not by car, I stopped at a Popeye's along my subway route. And I, instead of buying one spicy fried chicken drumstick from Popeye's, bought $60 worth of fried chicken brought it in, put it on a big conference table in the office, sent a message around to the entire office and said, fried chicken for everyone because I'm a benevolent and wonderful person and you should love me. And under cover of everybody else's happiness, I got to have my secret chicken drumstick, which I ate like furtively crouched so in the corner. Like You Gollum. just wanted one piece of chicken. I had to like diffuse yeah. it across 60 other people. In order to not, I I don't want to talk about this in terms of shame and guilt because I think on a fundamental philosophical level, I reject the idea of a guilty pleasure. I feel like if you eat something and if you derive pleasure from it, you should embrace that. Yeah. Like I don't think it's okay to feel ashamed of what you eat. And I think that if you feel shame, you should figure out why and you should get mad at the people who did it to you. But like there was something, there is something in my head where I'm like, I shouldn't eat a piece of fried chicken from Popeye's in the middle of New York City where I could be eating thousands of other things that are probably better. But it was exactly what I wanted and it was totally perfect. And you did something nice for other people. Um, but for very selfish reasons. Well, I mean, for the same reason that you say that, you know, I shouldn't feel bad about, you know, the occasional 10-piece uh, chicken McNugget from... Oh, it's a 10-piece now? I think it's cheaper than getting the equivalent. Well, they don't sell them in five packs. But, you know, I was like, I don't think I really want 10 nuggets, you know. And then like two minutes later, I reached into an empty bag and I was like, what the fuck? Where the where did all the nuggets yeah. go? And then I was like, yeah, they went into your body because you they're it's hard to resist them anyway. It's not just hard. It's impossible. Like they're like incredibly well-paid scientists. Yeah. Who whose job is to make sure that we eat an infinite number of nuggets. Well, I'm going to take all of this into consideration the next time. I don't think I helped you. Sorry. I don't think I helped you at all. No, I think that it's been very therapeutic to kind of, I've actually, I've never told, and I've even told my wife about this weird habit I've developed. I'm not like I'm like super ashamed of it, but it's just kind of like that thing where you're like, why did I do that? That was stupid. I will say this as a parting mm -hmm. thought. What you don't want to do is order one of those bullshit healthy options. No. Today in the Eater Upsell Studios, we have Melissa Clark, who is, uh, you certainly know her if you look at the New York Times cooking section. She's this recipe guru. She's written so many cookbooks, I couldn't even keep them keep track of how many of 34, them. 34,000? Is that the number? Something like that. Yeah, we might be up to, you know, 38,000. But A lot of cookbooks. Yes. You've written so many cookbooks. You, you, you could actually reach the highest shelf if you stepped on all of them. Have you done this? No, but I, I think I will. You just and <laughs> Melissa has a new book coming out uh, right probably as you're going to be listening to this called Dinner Changing the Game. And it has a beautiful cover, I have to say. What is the dish on the cover of this book? Isn't it pretty? Yeah. Well, also, welcome to the Theater of yeah, oh, Thank to the you for having me. 
Um, yes. Have a beautiful cover. It is a beautiful cover. It is harissa chicken. It's a sheet pan chicken dish, and it has harissa, and it has olive oil and garlic and potatoes and leeks and yogurt and cumin, and you cook it all at the same time on your sheet pan, so you're only dirtying one sheet pan, and it is so delicious and easy and um Everybody should make this recipe. I want to make this recipe. And then there's a uh, there's a dahlia. In the I was about because- to ask about that. There's a, there's a beautiful pink dahlia in the lower corner, and dahlia is your daughter's name. Exactly. So I asked the photographer very specifically. Um, we had a great photographer named Eric Wolfinger. The pictures are beautiful. And I said, can we please put a little splash of color in the photo, like a dahlia, perhaps? And he did. So do you put dahlias in, I mean, do you have Dahlia Easter eggs in many of your photos? Is this like a cool, like... <laughs> it should be. It should be a theme, except you can only get Dahlias in the fall. So, so no. But uh, it should be a code. I, should, I should start doing that. I should just start... that famous caricaturist who wrote his daughter's... Um, oh, right. Um, I know who you're talking about. Al something. Oh, and yeah. his, his caricatures are Al everywhere on lead, restaurants. Al something? Al, Al, he has a Broadway theater named yeah. after him. That guy, and his daughter's name is Nina, which Nina, fortunately has all these beautiful vertical lines, and he puts her name into... Into every single caricature. I know. I love it. I love looking for the Nina. Yeah. So you should start putting Okay. Dahlia I'm going to start doing... I'm going to do secret Dahlias everywhere. Al Hirschfeld. Al Hirschfeld. Yeah. Al- I just yes, looked that up. Yes. Yeah, Go, yeah, Helen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never would have gotten that. I would have been Googling when no one was looking. I know we would have, like, edited in, like, like our producer Dan's voice just being like Al Hirschfield. So Melissa, <laughs> uh, dinner changing the game. What is the, what is the, how did this, like, what's the hook for this book? Like what did, what did it come together and what's, the, is there a big idea behind it? Is it just more of your there, favorite recipes? There is a big idea behind it because it's changing the game. It's not just dinner. Um, and I do feel, you know, having written my New York Times column now for 10 years, I've written a lot of dinner recipes and no matter how many I write, people still have a dinner problem. People you know, they get home after work and they make the same 10 things, maybe if they're really accomplished cooks. And if they're not, they make the same five things. You know, that thing you do with the chicken or the fit, yeah. that pasta. And they're great dishes probably, but you get stuck in them and you get tired of them. So what I tried to do in this book is to take the simple techniques that you're already using to do your chicken thing or your pasta thing and then add interesting ingredient combinations to make it new. Do you think there's a reason that dinner has always been the problem meal? Yes. We have to do it every single night. (laughs) You know, it's like lunch is optional. Lunch, you can get a sandwich, you can, you know, get a yogurt. Breakfast, I mean, I'm not, I don't even eat breakfast, so, you know. But dinner is, especially if you have a family, you have to make dinner. It's like the meal that should be cooked, I feel like. I mean. Yes, that's right. People expect you to, you know, as a grown-up, <laughs> somehow feed, especially if you're, you know, like I said, if you have a family or if you're caring for other people, you're supposed to actually cook dinner or at least, you know, you don't want to order in all the time. I um, used to, I, sh- I still do. I don't know why I'm hedging this. I have a, a pretty extensive collection of really old cookbooks and old household management books like the late 1800s. It was rare to just have like a flat-out cookbook. It was also how to, you know, fire your maid. Household <laughs> management? <laughs> and is that, milk is that the a cow. Term yeah. Used? Well, the the very famous one is Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, which yeah. is like a doorstopper of of literally just sort of how to run your home. And cooking was part of this and sort of in equal parts the actual recipes and also sort of how to instruct your cook. But anyway, the point I was going to make is that it seems like often when we talk about the anxiety of making dinner, I think there's a sort of implied – this is a post-World War II women entering the workforce kind of problem. But everybody has always been anxious about making dinner, I think. Unless you have a cook, 
even in these 1860s, 1870s collections, it's like the trial for the wife of feeding her family every day can be quite arduous. Like, yeah, it's always been a problem. Yeah, exactly. Because it like, you know, it is the thing that you are expected and you have always been expected to do. And um, I think but I do think it's probably like a pretty modern modern being like, let's say, post 18th century thing. Right. Because before that, you either had a cook because you were rich or you were poor and you could barely get it together. I mean, there wasn't a lot of the middle class people making dinner themselves. So this is a it's a pretty new construct in you know the history of eating. But I think I think you're right, Helen, is that it's it's always been this um, weight on usually the women's shoulders, the mom, the the head of the household. And we're really lucky in that, um, you know, we're, we don't actually have to, you were talking about household management, we don't actually have to go to the cow to get the milk. You know, we don't actually have to make sure that we sow the peas at the right time so that we actually, you know, sow the seeds so we have the right, you know, ingredients when they're in season. We have it easy, but yet, <laughs> but yet. I love your approach in this book, which is very much in line with how I cook dinner when I do, because I don't do it that often. I mean, this is really. I mean, this is the great secret anxiety that I think everybody has. Like, I don't feel. I don't even have kids. Like, I'm feeding myself and my husband. Like, that's why you don't do it that often because because you don't. I mean, uh, once you have a kid, everything changes, and you really have to. I mean, because every single night she's got to eat. Like, you know, you can kind of fend for yourself. Your husband, he's a grown guy, he can yeah. fend for himself. But I already feel incredibly deep anxiety and, and feelings of failure and inferiority because I don't make dinner often enough, and I can. And it doesn't even matter. And, like, it's going to get so much worse if I ever have kids. But it's going to get so much better as you cook through my book. Oh, How do you like that? Yeah. There's a little sales pitch. But, no, but I, I think um, I think a lot of it is also the way we think about dinner. You know, we think we're still stuck in that post-World War II dinner. And, you know, dinner means a protein and two sides. And, and that's a lot of cooking. You know, you, you've got to roast your chicken and then you have to saute your green beans and you have to mash your potatoes. And you have to do all of that while you're helping your kids with your homework or answering emails, you know or doing something else. So what I tried to do in this book is to make every single dish one thing that you can eat for dinner so that you don't have to balance. You don't have to think. You just follow the recipe or you can put your own spin on it. And by the end of it, you have one really yummy thing that is satisfying, that is different from maybe something you've made before, and that isn't hard. Would you call these one-pot meals? Many of them. I mean, sometimes you might have to use two pots. One of my favorite things is, you know, I love the sheet pan, so I'll use a sheet pan and maybe I'll use a little saucepan on the stove or a sheet pan, and if I'm going to make a salad, I'll have to toss it in a salad bowl. But they're mostly one pot. But so, so the oneness is not really in the preparation. It's in the it's on the plate. It's like this is not one for your segmented high school cafeteria style right. TV dinner plate. This is just like a bowl or plate of one consistent awesome thing. Right. And then also you get all the you get the interplay of flavors and textures and colors and it just makes it it makes eating it. I really think that the more beautiful it is, the Oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna talk about <laughs> what the I just opened Oh I just yes. opened I'm flipping through the book while we're talking and I just opened to a recipe for pea guacamole. Which like the finish your thought and then we're gonna get to this. <laughs> right. So it, it, dinner is more. I mean, it's not any harder to make it colorful, to make it flavorful, and to make it absolutely delicious than it is to make something that's sort of meh and not that pretty. So you might as well, you know, take it take it to its best potential. I almost feel like culturally we're moving more towards this idea about f- like what uh, um, like really good food is, though. Like it's one thing. It's a bowl. It's a sheet pan that has all these lovely things on it as opposed to like 
it's like the TV dinner where there's like these little compartments of stuff, you know? I don't know. Like, Yeah, I will. I think that's true. I think we're evolving culturally. I really do. Because, you know, you think about the way you feed a kid and you keep everything separate because they don't want their sauces. They don't want everything to touch. You know, and then as we, you know, get more adventuresome in our tastes, and I think culturally that's happening as well. We're trying, you know, we are trying so many more flavors than we ever have. And we're exposed to so many more flavors. It's amazing. I mean, you think about, like, would your mother have ever made, at least my mother, never would have made um i don't know she she never would have been comfortable enough cooking a korean meal to then riff on it you know and mm-hmm. that's amazing like the fact that we can that we are starting to learn about really um many enough cultures that we can start to take it in and make it our you know do our thing to it i think that's great okay let's talk about the controversial pea guacamole which i totally by accident open to, you call it the controversial pea guacamole right here. Yes, the, yes. It's the Might name well of the just, recipe. Just take it on. Got to be the most famous um, or notable guacamole recipe of the last three decades, I'd say. <laughs> Probably of all Probably time, of all I think. Time. If you're like, if you asked anybody to say, name a specific guacamole recipe. Or name a guacamole recipe that got in the media. Uh, before, right, that, right. Was, that was surrounded by scandal. I got to say, as soon as there was the scandal, which was what, like a year ago, two years ago? A couple years two ago. Two years, two years ago. ago. Okay, so I'd had the, the dish that, you know, served as its inspiration, the ABC Cocina Pea Guacamole. And, you know, I, I'd had it and thought it was completely in line with the concept of that restaurant. And, you know, when people, when I started seeing people talk about it on this recipe that was published in the New York Times, popping up on Twitter and Facebook and stuff, I was like, yeah, no, I know. I've had that. Re- like, I didn't I didn't connect this to sort of what the point of tension was because I saw it as more of like, this is this chef's recipe from this restaurant that's been sort of reinterpreted. But um, I don't know. What- well, Melissa, do you want to give us a recap of the controversy in case well, any of our listeners were not <laughs> foaming at the mouth with rage? So what happened? Um, well, the funny thing is I originally published the recipe. When did ABC Cucina open? I think it was like 2012 or 13. It was 2013, but I'll... Yeah. So I published the recipe in 2013. I had a column at that point, which was called Restaurant Takeaway, where I would write up a chef's recipe. And I published it in the paper and in 2013 and nothing happened. You know, it just it was a recipe. It was great. We photographed it. Then two years later. And just to interrupt for a second, the recipe is a flavor-wise fairly traditional guacamole. Absolutely. But it substitutes green peas for a portion of the avocado. Exactly. And so what the green peas, and this is from um, a restaurant that is next to the farmer's market. It is all about farmer's market cooking. Uh, So using fresh peas makes perfect sense. And what the peas do to the guacamole is, well, first of all, they add sweetness. They add a different texture. You know, avocado is very soft, so they add a slight crispness. They add a chunkiness. They are beautiful. They add a great color. So I think it's a great dish. Now, is it the only guacamole I'd ever want to eat? If someone put me on a desert island and said, you have one kind of guacamole, I would go with traditional. But I believe that there are many ways to enjoy guacamole. Anyway, I wrote about it in 2013, let's say. Not a peep, nothing. Then the New York Times um, on Twitter, they tweeted two years later, they were just, you know, going through their archives. I think maybe it was around, was it around Super Bowl? No, it was some other sporting event thing um, because I remember it was warm out. When I heard, I was walking down the street and it was warm. I, I seem to recall that it was around like the 4th of July when it was a news dead zone. Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, oh, that's right. It was okay, July, so maybe it was yes. I, there was an Eater post about this. Greg is fact-checking. It was well, uh, July yes. 1st, 2015. 
Okay, there we go. So I was outside on July 1st, 2015. So two years after the original recipe, they tweeted it and they said something like, put peas in your guacamole, trust us. Now, first of all, the wording of that tweet is very provocative. You know, trust us, put that's peas a in your guacamole. It's, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's asking for engagement. Exactly. And that's what they got. So, and then readers were livid. They were like, how dare you put peas in guacamole? Peas in guacamole is a travesty. It's the most. First of all, they all thought it sounded gross, which and it's delicious, and they didn't like that we were mucking with tradition, that guacamole should only be one way. And as a food writer, as a recipe developer, I fundamentally disagree with that. Now, then— I mean, it got to be it got to the point where President Obama was tweeting about this pea guacamole. In fact, he tweeted that guacamole peas and guacamole. No, guacamole should only have onion and garlic. Now, of course, garlic. That, yes, that's yes. bullshit. No, exactly. no garlic so then, and guacamole. Now, well, <laughs> duh. So Obama got it totally wrong. So I mean, it was fact, but it built this debate. And then we had I think this George, is the great I, history of tension between the president of the United States and the New York Times. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but then George Bush, I think. Also yeah, tweeted. Jeb Bush. And a Jeb Bush, I see. Jeb Bush, yeah. yes. Jeb Bush tweeted. Jeb Bush that uh, he agreed with Obama. I mean, he didn't uh, acknowledge Obama, but Obama and Bush totally were, uh, they agreed that peas and guacamole was a bad idea. So and so when, you saw I, that, I, as a, when you saw the president <laughs> tweeting about your recipe, what did you... Uh, negatively. Yeah, negatively. Yeah, you, I, you have been chastised by... Barack Obama. I know. That should be the top line of your author bio. Like, (laughs) what? The woman who, the the woman who wrote the rep. But it wasn't even my recipe. Here's the thing. I'm a reporter. It wasn't my recipe. I was reporting (laughs) on someone else's recipe. So it was very hard to feel personally affronted by all of the attention. I wasn't that upset. I mean, it was a lot. I had to go on some news shows to talk about it. (laughs) But, um... You know, all in all, I, I <laughs> the angle on this that um, as a as a serial dieter that I feel like was not sufficiently expressed is that if you read any of these like low fat cookbooks or if you get involved in the the weird cycle of self loathing that is Weight Watchers, pea guacamole is a big part of your life. Like, oh, like so- for decades, pea guacamole has been this like tragic fat woman diet food where it's like, okay, do I you had want no all idea. of the fun of guacamole without any of the deliciousness of avocado, just use peas. Wow. And um, I've made pea guacamole, like, when I have been actually caring about yeah. losing weight. And, like, it's fine. I, I I had not done what this recipe does, which is very smart, which is combines the peas with the avocado. Right. So it's not just all tragic legume. That but, is fascinating. I did not know that was a thing. And that adds a whole other layer to the story, which I yeah. didn't realize. Yeah, it was, and and then that sent me down this sort of interesting semiotic and semantic path of what is a guacamole, and at what point on this sort of smooth food continuum does something stop being a guacamole and start being a hummus? Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. Yes, uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then we have the whole hummus problem. So yeah, so why is butternut squash hummus not offensive? Why is pea guacamole offensive but not butternut squash hummus? Tell yeah. me that. And and why is butternut squash hummus even identified as a hummus instead of a guacamole? Because of tahini, right? So it's like if the key to like tahini and lemon and garlic, I would say would would be the the, the hummus thi- maker. The hummus maker. So then what's the guacamole maker? Is it the cilantro, lime and jalapeno? That seems right. So if I put cilantro, lime and jalapeno in a puree of chickpeas, would I have just made chickpea <gasps> hummus? Made, oh my god, would you or have made chickpea guacamole? Chickpea guacamole or would you've made Oh, wow. And could you make avocado hummus? You know what? All of this sounds really good. I'm just going to go home and make it and not actually stress this out about it. Yeah, we should do like, well, a, we could do like a Facebook <laughs> poll about this. Be like, what is this? Is it 
Exactly. Well, I mean, this is a famous, a famous um, logical philosophical paradox. Yes, right? it's exactly. The, the paradox of the heap. Like when you have yeah. these continua, like at what point do you draw these lines? And of course, they're completely arbitrary. And an avocado has very little in common with a pea, like biologically, right? It's a yeah. Uh, what is an avocado? It's a fruit. It's a droop. It, right? It's a droop. Right. I think. And a pea is a legume. Right. So it's and, a droop because then it has you have a the seed. Whole, yeah, because it has the big central pit and it's it grows it's a on a tree fruit. and it's a stone that fruit. Is yeah, so weird. and then you also have things like like white bean spread, mm. which is called a bean spread, even though it's kind of a hummus, but it's a bean and it's not a leg. I mean, this is and then it doesn't have the it doesn't have the tahini. Right. This is. I mean, it's this right. is very important triangulating work that we're doing. Right I now. think so. I think this we're is actually so making... much better than is a taco a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Melissa, you write a lot of recipes. Um, what? How do you decide what to pick, what to zero in on, and, like, what is that process like? Well, it's collaborative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's collaborative if I'm writing for The Times. It's different from a cookbook. Well, even in that's a little collaborative because my editor is somewhat involved, although in a much kind of – she's not as hands-on as my editor at The Times. So I spend a lot of time – going over ideas with my editor at the Times. And, you know, it's not – it's the, it always starts with what do I feel like cooking? What do I feel like eating? And that's the place it starts. And then we go to what would fill out the section? What don't we have in our database? What makes sense seasonally? What haven't we done in a while? No more lamb. We've, we're done with – as my editor no said. No more lamb? Think, what? Well, we're taking a lamb hiatus. She huh. said, you know, our, our, our lamb recipes, the number of lamb recipes that we have in our database far exceeds the – Interest in lamb that uh-huh. <laughs> we get. So, in other words, we've overdosed on lamb for a while. So, just a little break. We'll come back to it because it's delicious. Right. But we're, that's like the recipe um, writer's recipe or something. It's lamb. <laughs> I love lamb. It's so true. I just I was really pushing lamb this spring. I was like Easter, come on Easter, Passover, lamb, 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 and you know instead we ended up with pork tenderloin. So then it's a it's a compromise. So then you know my editor might come back and say, well you know we haven't done pork tenderloin, and then I'll say you know I'm not so into pork tenderloin. But maybe there's a way I can get into it, and then I'll run home and I'll play with pork tenderloin, and then I'll realize, oh my god, if you stuff it so it and you keep it juicy, it's delicious. So I will have learned something new, and there will be a recipe for pork tenderloin coming up in the next few weeks. It sounds like um, the internet has changed the way the Times thinks about recipes. That is very true because we have the database now. We have and when I say the database, I mean NYT Cooking, which is you know where yeah, a lot of our it's a whole other site. Y'all are so. crushing it. It's it's it looks beautiful and it's super easy to use. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real it's a good site. It really makes sense, and um, we are working really hard to keep it fresh and to you know keep it good. But you know, but it's true. It has changed the way we think about recipes. It used to just be how do we fill out the section week by week. And now it's, you know, how does it live in an entire universe that we are creating? You know, where is its place? So it's it's a bigger, it's a heavier lift, but it's good. It's more things to think about. I, I think that, you know, the the tension between the print publication world and the digital publication world, one of the hinges of it is that exact thing where I remember um, talking to a friend who used to work for a wedding magazine, and she said that they used to be able to just Basically, they were on a a 10-month cycle. Their average reader would only read, you know, Happy Bride or whatever it was called for about 10 months from when she got engaged to when she got married. And then they would have a totally new reader. So they had just the churn was incredible. So they basically would just keep running the same stories over and over again. They had a whiteboard where they tracked all of the stories and they said, (laughs) okay, it's time for the like what to do when your best friend is being a bitch story. And it's time for the like how do you dress your mom in something that matches your centerpieces story. And you could – 
they would make like slight tweaks and right. they'd vaguely modernize it. But, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, back in the day when there wasn't an internet, if you were a newspaper or if you were a, a recipe magazine, you could say it's spring, it's time for a lamb recipe because people were primarily engaging with it through the physical object of these exactly. pieces of paper landing yeah. in their hands. And now it's like, well, man, we have a database with 45 lamb recipes that are pretty similar to each other. <laughs> And nobody wants to make them. That's the other tragic <laughs> and then part. That's the other like, thing is that, and in fact, they are not our most popular recipes. People should eat more lamb. But yes, and you know, so that's how we come up with the con- the overall concept for what each recipe is going to be is this kind of compromise and discussion. And then in terms of flavoring it, you know, and that's where the flavoring. I always say that it's like I have my protein and then I dress it up. You know, it's like when you were a kid and you had your little doll and you change the dressing. I do that to my my chicken. I'm like oh chicken, you know, I'm going to put you in harissa. Today and you're going to look so pretty and taste so good. Um, so it, it, that's where I get to really have fun. And uh, then I test the heck out of it. That's part of what I do is I test my recipes more than once, hopefully more than, I mean. You test them in you know, your, in your home kitchen? In my home kitchen. Um, I have a recipe tester who I work with, so I'm not, I'm not the only one cooking because it's always good. You need to have someone else to I believe, at least for my process, have someone else test the recipes because I want to make sure that what I take for granted is uh, that I don't take things for granted because I, I tend to take things for granted. So to make sure that it's all clear and that it all makes sense and that when you get it, it works. And the worst thing is when a recipe doesn't work because you've gone out and you've spent your money and you've put all this effort into it. And then you get something and you're like, eh, that was all right. Yeah, it's like and dating that, someone yeah. um, and everything's going great. And then you're in your car and you see like a Nickelback CD or something. You're like, what? I can't trust you anymore. <laughs> you know? I've invested the best years of my life in <laughs> you and your horrible secret taste in music. Well, but, you know, like. but what if someone gave them that? What if it yeah, was like a, a gift? Point. Yeah. Hey. I like that you're defending our hypothetical horrible <laughs> boyfriend. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just assumed it was a boyfriend. Yeah, our hypo- I, our, I guess it could anybody. I guess I was Nickelback assuming it was a, a boyfriend as well. But I guess there's some some lady Nickelback <laughs> fans out there. I don't know. So I imagine by this point in your career, your hit rate is pretty high and you start the recipe development process and you have a pretty good sense of where you're going. But do you still occasionally just run into something where you're like, you know, this is garbage. I'm this done. We're starting over. Oh, yeah. No, that happens all the time. I mean, not, you know, it, but it's never a total failure because I usually learn something from it. I'm like, you know, that I whole idea with the, what did I do recently that was just not going to work? I can't remember. It was something with where I, ju- I was using tahini where I really shouldn't have been using tahini. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, that whole, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> using tahini where you shouldn't. So then I will, you know, I'll think, I'm like, okay, well, what can I, what it's too, it's too rich or it's not creamy enough. And then I'll think, okay, maybe I'll use yogurt or maybe I'll use cream. I mean, I'll keep, I will keep working the recipe and I will hopefully learn that, you know, just you, you, the profligate use of tahini is just not a good idea. You need to have a better structure. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you, what do you order when you go to restaurants? The weirdest, most unlikely thing. Whenever I see a dish on a restaurant menu and I think that is a bad idea, I order it because if it's a good idea, then it's amazing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I never would have thought to pair, you know, let's just say, I don't know, what's, what's too t- – oh, God, like squid and tahiti. Sure. Which actually doesn't sound very mm-hmm. good to me. But if someone did that and it was great, I would be – I'd be so happy because I'd learn from it. Um, so that's the first thing. And then if everything on the menu looks good, 
I don't know. I never. I, can't, I have a really hard time with two people at the table ordering the same thing. Oh, I totally I agree. hate yeah. that. Yep. So I will be the last person to order always, and I will just. So I'll kind of go with the what's left over. Yeah. Thing. Uh, that's so um, funny. And then if it has anchovies in it, I will order it. That depends, of course, on your table mates being people who are willing to share bites of food, which is. Like they, they have no choice. I don't eat with people who don't. I really do. I mean, I do. I do. It's not fair to say, but I, I, I don't enjoy it nearly as much. I don't have to stick my fork in their plate. They can give me a little bit on a bread plate. Yeah, but I, I am with you. I don't understand people who don't want to share. I have not met any non-sharers in our line of work. Thank God. It would because you then couldn't you'd, survive. No, because then you would also look at them and be like, really. Really? How did you? It doesn't, you know. Well, I mean, you couldn't make it. I mean, you know, back to Greg's point about like the small plates explosion, like you would not be able to live in the restaurant world if you couldn't you would, share plates with people. You would order your three small plates and you'd put a barrier of napkins, water glasses and sugar packets around you. <laughs> so it sounds like you go for the outliers on the menu or just the things that are kind of unusual. And uh, yeah, I do. And I love that you mentioned that if it's got anchovies, you'll absolutely go for it. I think about this all the time. Like there are certain I think of them as kind of my my menu trigger words where I'm just like, oh, if something has the word artichoke in it, I am just definitely ordering it. Oh, There's yeah. no question. Absolutely. Yeah, there, it's true. Greg, what are your trigger words? Anything that's like Sichuan, whatever, that's not, mm. you know, at a Sichuan restaurant. If there's somebody's using some spices, um, uh, induja, is that how you say it? What's the... Induya. Induya. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I Love guess it. I like sort Love of it. applications of very potent spicy things in places where I would not necessarily expect them. That is oh. why you and I get along culinarily <laughs> because that's why you like my recipes because yeah. I, that's, ex- I love, it's like that little surprise of like, hey, let's put, you know, some chili there, slice up a jalapeno mm-hmm. and throw it right on top. I think everybody has that too. Like the things that they'll see on a menu or they'll see in a recipe and they're just like, oh, that one's for me. Yep. Yep. No. Along with artichokes for me, it's preserved lemon mm. and capers. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. I just, I want things that are really salty, I guess. Yeah. I, I just want salt. Two of my favorite ingredients. Ca- capers are great. We, we don't use enough capers in they're this country. They're magical. And they only come um, in, like, I mean, the jars of capers are fairly small as jars go, but there's so many more than you need in any given application. And it's just like, we should be using them by the pound. It's funny, actually, I buy them in bulk. And I keep about it. I always have a pint of capers in the fridge. So That's I use I, quantity. Yeah, no, but I use I really use them. I love them. And then, you know, what is great, which we don't get here. But in um, I think it's in Greece, right? They use caper leaves. Whoa. I think they I'm sure they use them in Italy, too. Caper leaf, pickled caper leaves are amazing. Can we please get I've more of I've never thought in, of that before. Pickled caper leaves, huh? Exactly. I had my mind blown by the realization of what capers actually are, which is um, they're unopened flowers. Yeah. They're flower buds. Exactly. And then caper berries are the berries from the right. flower. Can, can yeah, you fry it, them like popcorn kind of if you put them in hot oil? They don't get totally crisp. They'll crisp on the outside, but the inside, they're so marinated, you know, mm-hmm. that the inside stays. So they don't get totally crisp. So they're not popcorn crisp, but they do get nice and crunchy and on the can, outside. And you can make capers out of other flowers, like nasturtium capers. Um, you can? Sean Brock's cookbook heritage has a recipe for nasturtium capers. Wow. From unopened nasturtium That's blossoms. Brilliant, of course. Why not? Yeah, right? It's just like the, the universe expands. It's that like guy with the mind blowing emoji. <laughs> like, um, speaking of the mind blowing emoji, Melissa, yeah. you and the New York Times team <laughs> just released a really cool thing the new essentials of French cooking, like a really amazing 
bundle yeah. of stuff. And I can't offhand. You basically wrote a cookbook. Yeah. It was basically, yes, yes, I'm, a small cookbook, but yes. Um, it's gorgeous. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what was the process behind something like that? Were you just eating French food for like four months? Pretty much. I mean, the same 10 recipes. We decided at the Times to create the ultimate guide, you know, so this sort of beautiful immer- immersion into one thing. And we talked for a long time about what the thing would be. And so we decided on French food. I was pushing Korean food, but, you know, because I wanted to learn more about it. But um, we decided on French food. We went classic. And I think that was the right choice. Um, and so I, we spent the, we spent seven months on this thing. So I you know, was behind the recipes seven and the text. Months. But then we had, you know, we had producers who did the, the amazing videos. We had, you know, the art director. We had the photographer. And we came up with what I really think is a fresh way to experience a cuisine. Um, m- what I wanted to do was I wanted to show how historically important French cuisine was in the world and also how it is still so current and important. So I really wanted to do, um, I wanted to have a lot of um, cultural context in it. I wanted to have history in it. And then I also wanted to get down into the nitty gritty of these 10 dishes, which I think tell, help tell the story of French cuisine. And I really spent a long time making the dishes, breaking them down. What are the tips? What can we learn from them? How do we make them? You know, how do I, are there ways to streamline them if there are? And, you know, how do I do that? Or maybe there aren't. And then how do I explain to people that it is worth the time? Um, It was, it was really wonderful. How did you decide which 10 recipes? So much discussion, so many meetings, so many emails. So how do you do that? 10, and why 10? Why? I don't know why. (laughs) It was so random. We thought, well, 10 is a good number. And so we stuck with it. You know how the numbers are important. You know, should it be nine? Should it be 11? No, no, let's stay with 10. Mm -hmm. I tend to like prime numbers when I have to do these collections of things. So you would have done 11. I would have gone with nine or 11. I probably would have gone with 11. Yeah, 11. We we talked about 11 for a long time. In fact, um, Bouillabaisse was on the list for a long time and then it got... Sorry, (laughs) It's interesting that French food is coming back in this way that is, um, and it's actually something I wanted to talk to you about, which is the relationship between the restaurant world and and the home cooking world. But it seems like for a very long time, French food was this sort of stodgy, boring, older sibling that, you know, everybody wanted to reject, the rejection of French food. We talked about this a little bit when we we spoke with Frank Bruni on an earlier episode, Um, like the rejection of French food and of the French methods of haute cuisine were such a defining facet of the kind of restaurant revolution of the early 2000s. And yes. I think in home cooking, too, it's been this move away from French as the end-all, be-all and more towards an inclusive, more global approach. But now French is coming hurtling back. And as it should. I mean, there's no reason, you know, if we're going to have a global approach to eating, there's no reason that France can't be part of it because the food there's really good. You know, there's a reason that French food was so adored for so long before it got rejected. It's because it's delicious. Not all of it. You know, some of it doesn't quite hold up to our tastes. Like a lot of the mother sauces, you know, velouté maybe is not, you know. But (laughs) most of it. And also, I mean, when you look at the way people in France are cooking today, you know, it's not like the cuisine has stayed, has been stagnant. I mean, it's growing too. It's accepting world influence as well. There are 5 million Arab immigrants in France, approximately, they're influencing the cuisine in an incredible way. So it grows, and we should continue to learn from that. So what do you think about 
the relationship between the restaurant world and the home cooking world. They're I, the two tracks of yeah, food. Yeah. And they, they don't always intersect. No, they don't. Um, you know, I think we learn a lot from going out to eat. And I think that's great. We should. We should explore different cuisines and we should try new things. You're more likely to try something new at a restaurant than cook something new for the first time. By the way, I just made that up. But doesn't that sound convincing? Oh, it's that completely convincing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't well, actually have any stats on involved. that. But like, yeah. of course, I'd rather, you know, order a dish that I can just my only loss is money yeah. as opposed to buying all the ingredients and putting in all the work and my loss is both money and time. Yeah, it's true. And time is money. So it's like double money. I mean, it, yeah. it's funny <laughs> as like, you know, maybe three restaurant obsessives talking together uh, who also like to cook. I'll say that I have like, you know, people in my family who I know um, who maybe would prefer to like, they think it's more special to make the thing at home than it is to go get it at a restaurant, which is something I don't quite under, I don't, I'm not on the same level as that, you know? And then there are some people who are on completely the other side who will say, you know, a meal is much more special if I'm eating it out, even if I'm ordering something that is exactly what I cook Yeah, at home. that's, yeah, that's how I feel, actually. <laughs> but I think, I think that there's, you know, the kind of restaurants that you go to when you want exactly what you would cook at home, except you don't want to cook it. You know, those are your comfort food places. You know, maybe they're your Italian place that you go to a lot or your French place or whatever, or, you know. Your neighborhood restaurants. Your neighborhood restaurants. Right. And then there are the places that will just take you to a place where you haven't been or where you wouldn't go without, you know, being led there. And I think you need all kinds. I mean, you need to have many different kinds of restaurant experiences. But what I think is great is if you are a home cook and you love to cook is to just think about those meals that you had in restaurants and think, well, how do I, what did I love and how do I apply it in my own kitchen. I think a lot of us keep it really separate. There's restaurant meals and then there's that thing I do with chicken that I was talking about earlier. So that great restaurant meal where you had the, you know, that amazing caper sauce with the, you know, um, Korean chili powder and the, or whatever. Uh, think about those and try them at home because that, I mean, that's how I cook. That's how, that's what I think about. How do I get more flavor? How do I do more? And restaurants can be a really amazing source of inspiration. If you just remember to think about them, I think, you know, don't get, don't get stuck in your rut. I love that. The yeah. process and eating disconnect with food is a really interesting one. I think like people who love to cook and people who have the luxury to love to cook find so much pleasure in the actual act of it. It's, I mean, we like eating, but I, I don't know. I find the act of cooking to be very enjoyable for a lot of probably deep-seated psychological reasons about like organization and control and feeling like I'm creating <laughs> something and blah, blah, blah. But like, I think that for some people, it's not pleasurable. It, maybe they haven't found the right point of entry, or maybe it's just they're never going to like it. And so the point is not the process of cooking. The point is sitting down to like eat the goddamn meal. That is part of what I really hope I did with this book and in my life and just in everything I write. I want people to carve out the time to cook and create an atmosphere in which to cook so that cooking dinner is the best time of your day, or at least one of the best times of your day. It is certainly the best time of my day. I've arranged it so that when I'm cooking dinner, I am listening to music, not Nickelback. <laughs> no, that's in the horrible ex-boyfriend's you know? car. No, no. I, you know, and I'm I'm with my family. I am, you know, talking to my daughter. My husband is, you know, there with us. Either he often he'll be reading to me. You know, sometimes he'll read me the news or for a while. That's beautiful. Oh yeah, it's really he literally read, reads. To he you? literally reads. Sometimes he re we read. In fact, I think we read all of the Iliad. He read all of the Whoa. Iliad to me. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, your husband read you the Iliad while you cooked. were you cooking this a Mediterranean. Like, Feast like, at the time? Or? It was 
many it was many nights. It was actually when we just had our we just had had um, our daughter. And um, oh, but even if he's not reading to me, you no, know, we're still ch- we're chatting about the day. We're chatting with with our daughter. Um, I'm drinking a glass of wine. I'm like grooving out. I'm just enjoying the moment. And I'm playing with all these ingredients that I've gotten and I make it a really lovely space of my day. I say in the introduction to my book that cooking dinner for me is the daily equivalent of a weekend. Oh, that's awesome. That's really lovely. What are your uh, kitchen cleanup (laughs) strategies? Do you have any? Are you like, I... Yeah, Daniel does all of it because I cooked. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I have fortunately married into the same situation. I don't know how I have convinced my partner to take like the shit end of the stick where like I get to do the thing that I really enjoy and he's like well you did all that work I'm gonna do the dishes and I'm like oh honey yeah Yeah, all that work making a giant mess while making delicious food if you love what you do you you never work We've heard from a lot of our our listeners that they listen to the upsell while they're cooking dinner. That's perfect. That's the perfect thing to do. But I think you've now just totally destroyed the legitimacy of that. Like, I no, think no, if no, you're that's... listening right now, you should turn while you're cooking dinner, turn this off. Go find your romantic partner, and if you don't have one, go get one and force them to read to you while you cook, which is the new gold standard yeah. of like loving marriage. But if you're say that your romantic partner gets home later than you do, and you're cooking by yourself, and you're going to make a dinner for the two of you to eat, isn't listening to the upsell such a nice way? to pass the time. It really is. (laughs) So, Melissa, you've co-authored a lot of restaurant cookbooks over the day. Of all the projects you've worked on, has there been one recipe that's kind of people remind you or comes up a lot or that, you know, you get told like this was the, the one that in the book that, you know, really meant a lot to me? Oh, that's funny. No, I don't because it's I have such a diverse group of cookbooks that I've written. Um, I did the Franny's cookbook. I get a lot of people have been making pizza from Mm -hmm. that, which is great. What's your, I'm going to take this to a very morbid place, but like, what's the recipe that you hope runs alongside your obituary? Oh, um, actually it's not a recipe. It's a reported story. Oh, I broke the deep fried Twinkie story. There would not be deep fried Twinkies. I don't think in every state fair across the country, had I not written about a Scottish chef at a fish and chips place who deep-fried Twinkies back in 2000 and whatever, maybe 99. I don't think I've read this. Oh, 2000, May 15th, 2002. I just Googled it. Right. So before I wrote that piece, there were no deep-fried Twinkies at State Fairs. And after I wrote that piece. So I have that. So that's your legacy. That is my legacy. I broke. I didn't know. Again, it's not my recipe. I I just found the guy. Did you run the recipe? No, we didn't because you don't have to. You just take a Twinkie and you put it in a deep fryer. Wait, so this is actually a really important question that I have. I did not realize I've been carrying around for years, but I have, in fact, been carrying around for years. They're not encased in batter? Well, so they are encased in batter. Okay. So you make a batter. But so it's any batter. It doesn't matter. So it's like and your you just fish and dip chip. it, and yep. then you just throw it in a deep fryer, and that is literally all it is. Yeah. So if you're, apparently, if you are the deep fry chef at a fish and chips restaurant in Scotland, or this they is where this guy- fish oil? They use the fish oil. That they, that's horrible. Yeah, that, totally. And um, you, if you're bored, you deep fry anything that won't move. If it doesn't move, you deep fry it. Hmm. This makes so much sense Right, right. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have deep fried Mars bars and deep fried- Snickers. And if you are this Scottish chef who's a deep fry, who's working the deep fryer, and then you move to New York and you go to the bodega, what do they have? Twinkies. And Was this that's the, chip, and they, the chip and shop? The chip shop, yes. yeah, yes. In, um, in Park Slope. The, I don't think it's still there. But, but they used to have, or maybe they is. would deep fry anything. They had this yeah. massive yeah. menu of things that were deep fried. Uh-huh. And, and Twinkies have such incredible structural integrity that exactly. they stand up to the fryer. It's, per- it's a perfect thing. It's such a brilliant, I mean, the fact that this guy, forget his name, deep fried a Twinkie. 
was just brilliant. Yeah, I can't. So that's that's your legacy. That's yeah. My whole that's sort a, of that's, internet that's good, food right? understanding has always had deep fried Twinkies. It's a part of it. But I guess it was just right in the sort of, I mean, 2002, that's a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, 2002 you know? is pretty recent. I, mean, I think but, we, don't, we don't give enough credit. To, like we talk about how the internet has changed everything and like, but I don't think we give enough credit to how much the internet has changed the game at state fairs. Oh, yeah. Right? Exactly. Like, this whole, like, what else can we fry and put on a stick so we can make it into the right. listicle? Like, hell well, yeah. When they talk about, exactly. like, deep fried Kool-Aid, I remember that was one thing a few years ago. Oh, that was a thing. I remember and that. I was like, yeah. what? How do you fry a liquid? I have an issue with that. I just made a very forceful mm-hmm. gesture. People yeah, who are yeah. only listening to this in audio <laughs> form. Like, no, that I, I don't accept that. That's not deep fried Kool-Aid. That's deep fried Kool-Aid Jello, yes. deep fried like, Jello, yeah, and yep. and I think that this whole game of like frying things and putting them on sticks or not putting them on sticks, which I respect, mm-hmm. like I love that mm-hmm. game. I am really happy that this arms race is happening between like the Minnesota and Texas state fairs, but like you've got to be honest about what it is that you're putting out there. Yes. It's not a deep fried liquid; it is a deep fried gelatin, right? Because you different. can't. It, well, it's like soup dumplings; they're not really soup. Yeah, now we're hitting this continuum thing yeah, again, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, because it, it enters a, a, it, a soup it, it state. When you, right, when you steam it. So doesn't it become liquid when you fry it? I guess that's true. Wait, so is deep fried Kool-Aid, does it remain liquid? Is I it think like it, liquid it has inside a liquid center by the time yeah. it's, a, it's, it's like a okay, soup dumpling. Okay, I retract my outrage. But, yeah, so it's like it's jello then, beca- yeah, liquefies. Okay, never mind. You know what? I take it back. I respect it. I, I embrace <laughs> it. I went to the Minnesota State Fair um, this past summer, and they had a— uh, it was advertised as um, spaghetti dinner on deep fried spaghetti dinner on a stick, and I was like, "Okay, I'm there." You know what it was? Yeah. It was a fried what? meatball with a side of sauce, and I was like, "That's not that. That's no, not no, that. no. Where's it's the pa- where's the pasta? Where's the, yeah? Oh, the but I have an idea. The, the this batter. I have an idea. This is what they can do. No, no, no. Okay. This is what they can do. Okay, so you make your pasta and your sauce, and then you take your meatball and you stuff the pasta and the sauce in the meatball. You get a big like meatball. a scotch egg, exactly. Yes. And then you deep fry it. This is amazing. Okay, great. can we go into business? Yes, let's go into business and do this. Somebody should really take the state fair thing and you know bring it. You know, make it. I don't know. Put it on St. Mark in New York or something. Actually, that would be a really good idea for like a little fast food restaurant. It's like state fair food. Someone from Minnesota should, Andrew Zimmern should yes. add this to his I think extensive so. Actually, stable. Perfect of, he him. would be very good at it. We and should. he would do things with squid too. Oh yeah. Which is under, and, underrepresented in the deep fried on the stick thing and it's so perfect. Yeah. No, I think that it's, this is a genius idea. Guy. All right. After you the podcast, get a cut of the profits. let's go and draw up a business plan for this thing. And- <laughs> I mean, it's, all, it's a really fun game. Yeah. Is like, how are how, how, let's take any food and how would we turn this into a deep fried version of itself on a stick? And I feel like we could, we should incorporate this into the lightning round of all of our episodes. Yeah. I just want to talk about that for th- this kind of like, I love this game. Me I love too. Game you? I think it could be a good car game. It's a really good car game. Another really good car game that actually you reminded me of earlier in the show is, um, um, a, a game that another food writer friend of mine taught me, which is impossible, and we're not going to play it because it will take hours, is name three foods, none of which go together with any others. Oh. So not just all three together, oh. but like no one goes with any wow. other one. And it is wow. the hardest game in the entire world, mm. and it's really fun, and I encourage everyone to play it during board moments with your family. Okay, okay, I'm already lit. Oh, God, Helen, now what have you started? Okay, no, all right, all right. Focus, we're going to get back in. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how we'll refocus. We're going to do the lightning round. Oh, okay. All Melissa, right. do you know about the lightning round? I, I, I do. So today's guest question asker is Kendra Vaculin, who is one of Fantastic. the associate producers of the Eater Upsell and a big Melissa Clark fan. Yay. All right. Kendra, take it away. Hi, Melissa. This is Kendra, and I'm really excited to ask you these lightning round questions today. The first question is, if you could have an infinite supply of something in your kitchen, it would never run out, what would it be? 
Anchovies. That's a, that's a, that feels like an answer that is coming from your heart but not for your, from your brain. Like, not that it's a stupid answer, but, like, I think, like, you're saying this is the thing I love and I always want to have it on hand. But, like, logistically speaking, okay, okay, it got it. Okay, for you to— Fresh ricotta because they will never go bad. Okay. So, right? So, because you could always have, fre- like, perfectly, like, hour-old, just-made fresh ricotta, Man, the kind with lots of cream in it. That's making me that. so hungry it, talking about that. I <laughs> know, me too. And, oh, oh, it gets even better. No, wait, not only is it fresh or, or maybe it's burrata, freshly made burrata, and it's never seen a fridge, and it will never see a fridge because it's always fresh on my oh counter, my freshly made. That's a great answer. That's, can we all get one now, please? Yes, let's do that. We'll just have burrata <laughs> in the podcast studio. And we can put anchovies on it. It's so, really a good combination. I love this idea. Okay, sorry, Kendra, <laughs> I derailed your question. Over to you again. Next question. What are the three recipes that every person should know by heart? Okay, well, you have to know how to roast a chicken because, you know, you do crispy skin. You have to know what else. I mean, these are, these, I mean, I'm going to say very boring things, but you have to know how to make like an amazing salad. That's a like a real skill. Yeah. Salads are not Salads are obvious. Not, so you really have to, I mean, and, and once yeah, you get it, you get yeah. it, but you have to, you know what you have to do? You not only have, you have to know how to make a, without, without following a recipe in the salad bowl without dirtying up another bowl. So you have to be able to put your lettuce in, drizzle it with the right amount of citru- of you know citrus or vinegar, the right amount of salt and the right amount of olive oil. And then, you know, I always add a little bit of crushed garlic or a little bit of mustard, but do it right in the bowl. So the dressing. That, the dressing, right in the bowl, on either on the leaves or before you add the leaves, you have to get all the proportions right. I think if you can do that, you are just so happy. And you have to know how to make, oh God, I feel like I need a dessert in there, but there is no dessert. I mean... Maybe like a really easy hot fudge sauce would be great because then you could just put on anything. Or what else would be really good to know how to make? I have a sub-question. I don't know if this is top secret information, but like what is your most popular recipe? Red lentil soup. Red lentil soup? Really? I think so. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't have actual data on that, but it seems like there are more. If you look at my red lentil soup on NYT Cooking, there are more likes on that thing, I think, than anything oh. else. Can you believe it? Red lentil. It's just a simple little red lentil soup, but I yet. I have to check that out. But yet. It's a really good, it, it is a really good recipe for red lentil soup. That answer was very in keeping with the philosophy behind your latest cookbook dinner because you didn't actually say recipes. You talked about techniques and Structures. Yes, and that's then. And once you get those, then you can just do your own thing. I'm, I'm going to stay on brand here. No, you're, this is great. Your, your media training has been fantastic. Speaking of staying on brand, Kendra, uh, Kendra do we have another oh, question? Right. <laughs> the next question is: What is the most overrated kitchen gadget? I love this question. Oh my god, that's a hard one. Overrated kitchen gadget. Um, God, I don't even know what. I mean, I can tell you the thing I like the best. What's overrated? I mean, I know underrated, but overrated kitchen gadget. Okay, well, there's all that crap you don't need. What don't you need? You don't need a garlic press you definitely don't need a garlic press because you have your microplane microplane yeah exactly move over garlic press microplane is moved in that's actually going to change my life yeah I love my garlic press and nope you don't need it you got your microplane it's it's so much easier to clean too how do you not shred your fingertips to bloody okay I tell you how this is actually okay so when you peel your garlic clove you know how you're supposed to cut the end off your garlic clove that little hard lump don't do it just hold on to it use that as a little handle and then go Nine-tenths of the way there with the garlic clove, and then you're going to have this little itty-bitty nub, and you know what? Throw the nub out. I always take okay. that thing off anyway, you know? Yeah. Man, fucking news you can use on the Eater Upsell. This is <laughs> changing lives here. Exactly. Exactly. But that's not the question. The question was the, the most overrated. I mean, 
Is there some weed machines, really? Maybe I'm just not there yet. Maybe I just... <laughs> just you just do it on your own, you mean? Just like sous vide? I with don't the... know. I don't... I, like use a jacuzzi or just, something. D- why do you have to sous vide? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not there yet. But maybe one day. Of course, I am a new convert to my electric pressure cooker. So all I want to do is talk about electric pressure cookers. Anytime. They're the they best are. thing in the world. They're so good. And also, they have made me realize that slow cookers are garbage. Exactly. Can I? Can I just tell you a secret? Yes. Okay. We're on a pod, podcast. Okay. I'm going to tell, every, I'm gonna tell to. everybody a secret. Okay. It's not a secret. <laughs> all right. It's not a secret. But I'm writing an electric pressure cooker. What? Oh my god. I'm in love with you. Uh huh. Uh huh. So next in a year from now, I was going to say, yeah. By the time it comes out, a year and a half from now, you know, I'll come back on and we can just talk electric pressure. That's all I want to talk about. Like it it really, like any anything you can make in a slow cooker is also perfect for a pressure cooker. Except a pressure cooker does it ten times faster and with infinitely more flavor, and you get to feel really cool. I mean, there's only the only thing that the electric pressure cooker doesn't do that the slow cooker does is you don't have the evaporation, therefore you don't have the concentration of flavors. So, but you can get it, you can fake it, but you just have to compensate for that. So it's not an automatic, you know, but so, so I, I definitely agree with you. Um, but I do find the slow cooker because of the evaporation. So I, I mean, it can do really great things. However, my, my, my think, my current thinking is why would I do that when I could just pressure cook it? They're magical. They're magical objects. Is there anything where like, if you walk into someone's kitchen and, and it's one of those sort of, I have a lot of money, but I don't really cook kitchens, you know, like the, the show offy, like William Sonoma showroom style yes, kitchens yes. where you see a gadget and you're like, oh, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, those like wine rabbit thingies. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> those. those always break. Yeah, I mean, learn how like, to use know. a corkscrew. Exactly. Learn how. I, we had one and it broke, and then we had another one and it broke. I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I just my little waiter's corkscrew is just those so much are better. Like 180 dollars or something too. Yes, They're really expensive. they are. And also the things that suck the air out of your wine. You know, like <laughs> right. the little. I I use them. By the way, I have one. I use it. I don't find it makes any difference. I use the old all, fashioned so. way of sucking the air out of the wine. Just finishing the wine so, bottle. That's with a str- yeah. yeah. <laughs> that works great. We do that in our house too. That works great. I mean, I guess if you're like drinking a four hundred dollar bottle of wine and you want to have like your one perfect glass, I feel. Like, but like also, if you're that person, I feel if you're going to open a sympathetic. No, if you're going to open a four hundred dollar bottle of wine and not finish it, then you <laughs> need more friends. I mean, seriously, what's wrong with you? You and if or invite us over. Yes, yes invite like, us. We will over. be your friends. Mm-hmm. We will drink your fancy wine. For you me. can drink the whole bottle yourself if you start early and you know eat believe while in you yourself. Go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go all night. You can do it. Wait, um, we're not answering Kendra's question. <laughs> well, no, I think we got to it. It's the rabbit, yes, right? The rabbit the bottle rabbit. opener is the is the bullshit kitchen appliance. Yes, there we go. All right. What is the best thing that you've watched recently? Oh, oh, I watched, I just watched the OJ, the Oh, five yeah, part. Made in America. Oh, my God. That was amazing. It's good. Amazing. If you had to teach someone how to make, construct, or build something, but it was not food-based, what would you teach I them? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, okay, wait. Dahlia, you know, so my daughter often wants me to, like, do crafty things with her. So I've been, like, trying to sew. I'm, I'm learning how to—I'm kind I'm, I'm, so It's like trussing, but with a fabric it, instead of an animal. And then you can't eat it at the end, so really what's the point? Well, you but, can. But you wouldn't. But it's probably a very bad idea. So I've been, I've been learning how to do embroidery stitches. Wow. Because so, you can go on YouTube and learn anything. It's amazing. <laughs> the internet is changing the world. This is the theme of our show. It's so, the internet okay, wait, is great. But wait, that wasn't the question. The question was, <laughs> how would I, what would I show them or how would I show them? Yeah, what would you teach us? If it couldn't be food related. Okay. Okay. 
Um, oh, gardening, gardening, right? Yeah, only marginally food? food related. Well, but 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 we'll allow it. I think for purposes of 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 the spirit of Kendra's question, we'll allow gardening as a good answer. Do you okay. grow vegetables or or and herbs, or do you I grow, grow flowers? I grow herbs, and I have I have really beautiful rose bushes, and I learned something really cool about tri- about pruning roses. And probably everybody who has roses already knows this, but since I am new to this whole gardening thing, I have learned that you know how to prune a rose. This is really important. You want to look for the the place where the leaves go from three to five. There's like this little, like sometimes when they come out, they're like the way, so I'm really bad at describing non-food <laughs> things. I'm completely not fluent in this. But when um, the leaves grow, there are these little branches that have five leaves and these little branches that have three leaves. And you want to prune where it has five leaves. Isn't that exciting? That's there, a I've taught, I've, ta- yeah. I've taught you something. I've learned so much on this episode. <laughs> yeah, for real. But Kendra, do you have any final questions for us or are we wrapping up? If you could only drink one drink for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, geez. Water, seltzer, wine. Water, seltzer, wine. What would it be? Well, I mean, seltzer over water, but then I could get gassy. Assuming that water is always going to be readily available and it doesn't have to be. Oh, water's a given. Oh, phew. Okay. Wine. Wine. Good red wine. I mean, that would be my, you know, I would give up bourbon for it. I would give up, I would give up aviation cocktails for it. I would give up Pomplamoose La Croix. Oh, that stuff yeah. is good. That stuff is amazing. It's the only one I buy. It's the best. I, I really mean, I like, we, I like the lime and the lemon too. You know what sucks? The coconut. Really strong recommendation for the mango. We've discussed hmm. this on an earlier what? episode, but I am a what? huge partisan for the mango La Croix. Like it, I, I'm with you on Pomplamoose. The only one I think is better than Pomplamoose is mango. Wow. Those are strong words. It's, it's a, a it's strong a endorsement. Okay, I'm gonna because I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I, so I at an earlier episode, Greg and I talked about like my my operating theory of Lacroix, which is that the citrus based flavors are vastly superior to the non citrus. Yeah, ones. I agree and, with that. And even though mango is a non citrus, it is a highly acidic fruit, mm-hmm. and so I think it works because really the through line is is how acidic is is. All right. How acidic is the flavor? Wow. Okay. So try the mango. I'm going to. You can hate it, but you'll be wrong. Well, on that note, I gotta say, <laughs> Melissa, thanks so much for chatting with us today. I feel like I've learned it's like been a pleasure. so much stuff. <laughs> so if our listeners want to buy dinner, changing the game, they can buy it everywhere. They can right? buy it everywhere. Yeah, just go click somewhere, and or, or go to a store. Actually, it's nice. Yeah, and you can meet people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if they want to find you on the internet. Where can they find you? They can find me at NYT Cooking. If you just, there, there's lots of recipes by me and videos. You can see me, you know, spatchcock a chicken, for example. Or you can go to my website if you want to find out about events and things like where I'm signing books or whatever. It's melissaclark.net because someone else has .com. Damn it. I hate that person. I'm going to find them. Yeah, not cool. Have not them on cool. the show not and cool. humiliate them. No, we won't. We'll, we'll be loving. We love everybody. But that's not cool. You should have a .com. All right, Melissa Clark, thank you so much for joining us on The Eater Up Self. Thank you for having me. Um, make sure you hit the subscribe button on your iPhone. If you want to leave us a five-star rating, we would love that, or a comment saying how much you enjoy the sound of all of our voices. Be sure to tell your friends and loved ones all about The Eater Upsell, and Melissa can confirm that this is a super enjoyable experience that everybody should have, right? Absolutely. Tell everybody to listen to The Eater Upsell. Greg and I love you. Melissa probably loves you, too. I we'll do. We'll see you next week. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are.